This episode is brought to you by AARP. 18 years from tonight, Grant Gill will become a comedy legend when he totally kills it at his improv class's graduation performance. Knees will be slapped. Hilarity will ensue. That's why he's already keeping himself in shape and razor sharp today with wellness tips and tools from AARP to help make sure his health lives as long as he does. Because the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash healthy living. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So it seems in the past like 50 years, there's been this obsession in America and probably in other Western countries with authenticity, right? Our goal in life should be to uncover or discover our authentic selves. And once we do that, you know, the universe will unfold before us. Relationships will be awesome. We'll work with passion. We'll make money and our family will be awesome. And it's just everything will be great. In fact, you can buy books that'll help you uncover your authentic self. You can hire a life coach that'll help you discover your authentic self. You can take courses on living authentic manhood. I've seen that around. And, and marketers, businesses have taken, have gotten hold of this uh, obsession with authenticity that we have. And now you can buy authentic artisanal pizza from Domino's, or you can buy a candle made by an authentic craftsman in a New England hamlet. And because we're, we're drawn to that, we'll buy it because it says authentic. But what if this, this drive, this obsession with authenticity is actually hamstringing us from living a truly flourishing life? Well, that's the argument my guest today made in his latest book. His name is Eric Wilson. He's a professor at Wake Forest University. Uh, he's one of the leading experts on the connection between psychology and literature. He's a scholar of romanticism. It's a big R romanticism. And in his book, Keep It Fake, Inventing an Authentic Life, he makes the subtle but powerful argument that instead of trying to uncover some platonic authentic self, that what we should really be doing is trying to create ourself authentic self. And then sometimes that's going to feel fake, but that's okay. So today on the podcast, Eric and I discuss how you create an authentic life and what we can learn from philosophy, from science, from literature, from art, from films, from actors, particularly actors like Bill Murray or Cary Grant about creating an authentic life. A really fascinating discussion. If you love philosophy and art and neuroscience and psychology and literature like I do and like how those inter interconnect, you're going to love our discussion. So without further ado, Eric Wilson, keep it fake. Eric Wilson, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right. So uh, your latest book is called Keep It Fake, Inventing an authentic life. And we're, I think it's kind of funny you called it inventing an authentic life because we usually don't think of authenticity that way. And I love this book because it hits a topic that I've been thinking a lot about the past few years and this idea of authenticity because it's become like, yeah, it's an article of faith in America that you have to be authentic, right? Everyone's trying to be authentic. There's uh, psychologists, therapists, gurus who help you find and discover your authentic self, uh, corporations, 
are kind of using authenticity as a way to market their wares. So we have artisanal pizza from Domino's that looks rustic, and I guess it's authentic. And I, it's one of those words I think we use so much that we take it for granted, and we often don't think about what does authenticity mean? So how do you define authenticity? Well, I can talk about how I think that mainstream America defines it, and then I can talk about how I define it. So you refer to how authenticity is often used in marketing. Um, for instance, Domino's can say, oh, we have an authentic pizza. It's an art- artisanal pizza. Um, I think that authenticity in the mainstream is a kind of naive belief that there's some rock-solid reality um, that goes beyond societal convention, that goes beyond how we talk about the world, a, a kind of isness, a kind of being, a kind of essence. And if we can just get in touch with that, we'll be okay. And, you know, this idea is expressed often by the idea that you can be yourself or you can find yourself as if there's some sort of, you know, essential Ericness or essential Brettness sort of, you know, underlying all, all, all the all the developments of your life, all the circumstances of your life, uh, the, the history of your life. Um, and, and I think that I just carried over to, you know, our, our, our desire to have local food or organic food, the idea that there's a kind of deep realness to that that, that escapes artifice. Um, I think this is just kind of Platonism in reverse, right? If you go back to read Plato, you know, he said that there's some sort of ideal realm of forms in some eternal realm somewhere, and each of us is is a is a particular manifestation of these forms, and the goal in life is to sort of find how we relate to these stable forms, and then we'll be in line with truth, beauty, and goodness. Well, now we've kind of sunk that down into this idea of organicity, right? Uh, that you know, if if I can just sort of go down deeply enough in, into existence, there it will be realness. Um, what what I say is that there's no such thing um, as a self like this. Uh, basically, existence is too ephemeral, too transient um, for there to be any sort of stable being. Uh, I know for myself, my parents told me, "Be yourself, find yourself." Well, maybe I'm just too wishy washy, or, or maybe um, I just lack fortitude. I can't stay the course, but it's it's always seemed frustrating to me. Um, to try to find some stable idea of identity when I'm constantly, constantly changing. Um, so, so in my book, I explore the idea that a, a, a more powerful and useful form of authenticity, a less frustrating form of authenticity, is to think about authenticity as something that's not found, but something that is made. Um, and, and what I mean is, for for me, it's it's been very empowering to think about myself. Um, as a kind of way of, of interpreting my life as it is at a given moment. So when I'm in college, I'm going to think of myself one way because I have certain circumstances. When I'm a father, I'm going to think of myself another way because I have different circumstances. So what I try to do is I try to create a kind of narrative that helps me make sense of, of the chaos of my life. And I sort of imagine myself as a, a character um, in that in that narrative, sort of a character in a novel. Um so, for instance, if I said to you, Brett, you know, who are you? You would probably immediately start thinking about moments in your past that were especially meaningful to you. Oh, when I was six, this happened to me, and when I was eight, that happened to me, and that led to this happening to me when I'm 12. In other words, you would try to kind of create these causal links um, among various moments in your life, 
And that would allow you to create a kind of cogent story that will lead up to who you are at that moment in the present. Well, five years down the road, 10 years down the road, as your present circumstances change, you might focus on different memories, right? You might emphasize other memories um, and de-emphasize the memories that you earlier valued and come up with a kind of fresh narrative. So what I'm suggesting is that we're constantly, whether we want to or not, <laughs> um, you know, in, inventing fresh narratives to make sense of the kind of the flux of experience. And, and there are a lot of neuroscientists recently who have actually talked about how that's that's how cognition itself works. Um, what I say in the book is, why don't we just become self-conscious about this? Why don't we become aware of the fact that we're making narratives um, and sort of take charge of our narratives and, and try to create a narrative that will make our life as rich and full and varied as possible, and then sort of take responsibility for that narrative. To me, that's what authenticity properly should be. Okay. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, so I, I guess is the reason why people are so drawn to a platonic ideal of authenticity is that maybe it's just so it's hard to manage complexity in a, an ever-changing flux life? Is that what's going on? Is that, is that, is that why there's that drive? Well, I would say so. If I were to account for it psychologically, I would say that it's very seductive to imagine there is such a thing as, as, as permanent truth. I mean, life is insecure. It's um, unpredictable, and that leads to pain and frustration very frequently. So it's nice to think that if I, if I could just find you know, that, that one truth, that, that one identity, then I could rest. I could find calm. I could find peace. I could find tranquility. Um, so, so, you know, I, I, I understand the desire for that. I mean, I still have that desire. I mean, I, I would love to be able to say, this is who I am. My work is done. Um, because it's hard work, um, as you're suggesting, to sort of honestly face the complexity of life and try to come up with a way of thinking about yourself, which is sensitive to that complexity, um, that allows you to organize that complexity in a way that doesn't sort of kill it and reduce it, um, but also doesn't, uh, you know, allow the complexity to overwhelm you at the same time. All right. So, so your book, Keep It Fake, the, the format is a lot different from a, some of the other books I've read because it's, it's a mixture of whole things. You get into philosophy, literature, you bring in Bill Murray, you bring in your own life. What was your organizing principle with the book? Well, I would call it, I would call it a hybrid book. Um, it is kind of... <laughs> It is kind of all over the place, but I hope in a good way, right? So, so, so one part of the book is is, is I interweave stories in my own life. You know, my life as a as a, as a phony, <laughs> as someone who has you know been a fake in good ways and bad ways, and and that's really I think the backbone of the book. But also there there are a lot of uh, you know philosophical sections, scientific sections, psychological sections, um, literary sections, and also just a lot of sort of playful riffs on you know say Bill Murray. Or Cary Grant. I really wanted the book to have a kind of playfulness to it, like a kind of multiplicity, uh, because that's the kind of persona I would want to create, one, one that has that kind of heterogeneity and playfulness to it. So that's really kind of what I, I tried to, to capture in the book. And I guess my models would, would be sort of playful philosophers, not that I would compare myself in any way to these folks, but, but someone like a Montaigne um, or, or even a, a Thoreau um, uh, would, would, be, would be a model for this. Um, so I hope people get into the, to the, to the, to the playfulness, playfulness of the book. Yeah, for sure. It was a lot of fun to read. I mean, I just, that was the thing I wanted to keep reading because it was just so much fun. 
So in your book, you refer to a lot of uh, philosophers, writers who grappled with this question. And they might not have called it authenticity, but it was the same idea of what is the self? Is it possible to be yourself? I mean, how did philosophers in the past deal with this question of, of selfhood? Well, you, the whole the idea that that there's sort of a, a single, individual, unique self, um, you know, unrepeatable, unprecedented, and it will never be again. I think really didn't come into being until probably uh, you know the, the 15th century um, when the French philosopher Montaigne started writing his essays, um, and his basic question was, "Who who am I?" Um, so he was he was writing you know basically about you know, the very idiosyncratic, weird things that make him who he is and no one else. Um, I'm, I'm going to generalize kind of wildly here, sure. but, 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 but roughly, you know, before that, um, and again, Montaigne was actually residing in the 16th century, I think I said 15th before 16th century. You, you go back to someone like Plato, and I think there's a sense that, that each, each of us is not a sort of discrete individual, but one expression of some sort of universal ground of being. Um, in Plato's case, it's, it's the forms. You can go to Christianity. I mean, there is an idea that each of us has an individual soul, but the individual soul is, is, is most fully itself when it expresses the kind of Christ within that all of us share. And I could talk about medieval theologians, and I could talk about someone like Descartes. Um, all of them do kind of suggest that you know, ultimately who we are is a manifestation of some sort of you know, universal being or, or power or substance. Then Montaigne comes along and says, no, there, there is such a thing as an unrepeatable being. I am that, and no one will ever be like me again. And, and you, you kind of see that idea played out in someone like Shakespeare, who was a deep reader of Montaigne. Um, and in fact, he was reading Montaigne very deeply when he wrote Hamlet. And so we see Hamlet is the first literary work in the West, anyway, that, that treats this idea, that there is no one like Hamlet, and there will never be anyone again like him. And the same is true, same is true, same is true of all of us. Um, and this kind of idea becomes a ground for, um, I'd say, a mid to late 19th century philosophical turn um, embodied by people like Frederick Nietzsche and, and Soren Kierkegaard, uh, who were really the first to say, in, in a kind of disciplined philosophical sense. And Montaigne was a kind of literary essayist. Shakespeare was obviously a dramatist. These weren't philosophers. But, but, but Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, in a kind of philosophical sense, wanted to say that the place to start with philosophy is with, with, with its raw existence, the kind of nowness, the kind of messiness of where we are right here, right now. And life is messy, it's unpredictable, it is weird, it's strange. And to try to reduce that to some sort of logic or rationality um, is wrong from the start and kind of blinding oneself to what reality is. And this becomes the basis for what became known in the 20th century as existentialism, right? Which is precisely this idea that the, the, the place to start for philosophy, for literature, for art, really for anything, is precisely, you know, the, the sort of single, isolated individual self and how he or she makes sense of his or her own personal world. Now, again, that's a kind of, those are kind of large, sweeping philosophical sure. claims, but I think that kind of gives the shape of you know how the idea of you know self has kind of loosely evolved uh, in, in the history of philosophy. Okay, so if we're all just if, there's, if it's not possible to discover your authentic self, right, uh, and we're all just 
acting in a way. And I'm saying that in a positive way. I think a lot of people are uncomfortable. Yeah, why is that? I mean, yeah, people are uncomfortable with this idea that you are putting on a performance in a way, not only for other people, but for yourself in a weird way. Isn't that not right? Well, yeah, I mean, it shows up in our politics, right? I mean, if, if, if we, we talk about um, if Tricky Dick and Slick Willie, you know, the best way to sort of you know, throw a politician to disrepute is to say, well, that, that person's a liar. You look at our uh, sort of American cinema icons, you think of someone like John Wayne, Gary Cooper, uh, Gregory Peck. It's all about, you know, shooting straight, um, being sincere, telling it like it is. Uh, so we value that idea, and when we think someone is being, you know, dissimulating or play acting, we often think that's, you know, hypocrisy. Um, and so, so uh, what I want to, what I try to say in my book is, there, there are degrees of play acting, right? So let's say that identity is something we we make that we don't find. Let's say that the idea of self is a kind of ongoing narrative. Well, does that mean that, that I can be anything that I want to? And does that mean that I should be able to lie and it's okay? I say absolutely not in my book. Um, all fictions are not created equally. Um, paradoxically, what I say is that some fictions are truer than others. <laughs> what, what do I mean by that? So if, if you think of the self as a, as, a, as a narrative, as a novel, you can start thinking, well, some, some novels are better than others. What makes a novel good? What makes a novel not so good? Well, one way to think about a really powerful novel is a narrative that is open to complexity, um, that is able to connect with as many different points of view as, as possible. Um, in other words, to create a sense of self that is open to the otherness of the world and tries to accommodate the otherness of the world, as opposed to an area that, that closes you down that basically says, okay, I have sort of one way of thinking about the world, and I'm going to stay connected to that one way of thinking about the world. Well, that can lead to isolation. So to create a narrative that is narrow, dogmatic, fanatical, and also to, to, to sort of go through life lying, um, to go through life trying to deceive people to gain power over them, these are disempowering narratives, I would say, because they lead to isolation, um, they lead to alienation, and ultimately, I would say they, they lead to unhappiness. Um, whereas creating narratives that are kind of close to the reality of your particular present tend to be those that are, are the most satisfying. I mean, look, things happen. <laughs> you know, I have a certain genetic makeup that makes me who I am. Certain things um, in my past, my parents, my teachers made me who I am. I, I can't change those things. So there is such a thing as reality. I'm not saying there isn't such a thing as reality. But what I'm saying is that reality only becomes meaningful to us when we start talking about it and interpreting it, putting it into language. And at that point, what reality is, is, is not some kind of you know, stable isness, but it's our understanding of it. Let me give you an example, a kind of metaphor for that. So imagine that um, existence is like being thrown off a cliff into an ocean. Right, So I'm being thrown off the cliff into an ocean. Gravity pushes me down to the water in the same way that you know, my past pushes me towards certain actions in the present and the future. I'm being forced down into the water by gravity. Well, what, what, what can I do? 
Well, I have choices, right? I can flail wildly into a belly flop, um, or I can do a nice swan dive or a jackknife or a gainer. <laughs> um, in other words, we're given a, you know, a certain facts that we can't change, but we can choose how to react to them and choose how to interpret them. Um, and that's where imagination comes in. Um, we, we can imagine our falling, as it were, or imagine our lives in such a way that they have a kind of beauty and grace and generosity. Um, and those fictions are truer, I argue, than a kind of interpretation or reaction that is, that is closed and, and, and narrow and strained. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try Fast Growing Trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. 
Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. You you mentioned a type of irony I've never heard of before uh, until I read your book. It was called romantic irony. Can that help? Well, first explain what that is, and can this help yeah. us um, navigate a world where most people say, "Well, no, you can't." Uh, embracing enriching fictitious truths, right? That, that's kind of weird. Uh, you got to stick <laughs> to the the facts. Um, yeah. Can romantic irony help you navigate a world like that? Well, I, I, I think so. So romantic irony has a fairly specialized definition. I mean, if you, if you study literature, you, you know that there, there are many different kinds of irony, right? There's, there's dramatic irony, which occurs when the audience watching a, a play knows something that characters don't know. Or there's dramatic irony. Uh, um, I'm sorry, verbal irony, where an author is... Uh, saying something that has more than one meaning, like when Jane Austen opens up Pride and Prejudice, and I'm paraphrasing, by saying that it's a well-known fact that every um, man of good fortune is in one of a wife. That's the kind of grammatical meaning, the rhetorical meaning is that women want to marry wealthy men, <laughs> right? So that, those, are, those are just two kinds of many kinds of irony. Romantic irony is, really is developed in the late 18th, early 19th century um, by two writers in Germany, the Schlegel brothers, and it gets developed in, in England by people like Byron and in America by people like Melville. And basically, the basic assumption of romantic irony um, is this. The world is simply too complicated, too abundant, too vast for, for, for any one interpretation of it to be accurate, right? So Christianity, say, Marxism, say, um, Platonism say any any worldview only tells part of the truth because the world's just too big, it's too complicated, it's too vast. Um, so if I'm if, if I'm if I'm a romantic ironist, I acknowledge this and I embrace it, and I don't see it as something that makes me depressed. This constant gap between what I say about the world and what the world really is, but it becomes an invitation to be creative. Um, it, it becomes a kind of occasion to, to be exuberant. Think of it this way. So if we go on a, a field trip, say, to Greece, and we go to a ruined temple, and I say, oh, you know, look, look at that, that column from that ruined temple. Um, can you imagine what the temple actually looked like when it was whole? Well, what, what do we start doing? We start imagining what this temple would look like, but because the temple's not there, our imagining never stops, right? We can endlessly imagine what this temple might have looked like because we can never actually know what it looked like. 
Well, some might say, oh, that's really frustrating. <laughs> but, but if you're a, kind of a practitioner of romantic irony, you would say, well, that's really exciting. Um, because my mind is constantly activated, it's constantly moving, it's constantly in action, and that leads to a, to a kind of vitality. So, so this this idea is really exciting to me. I mean, I mean, and it shows up in works of literature, like when you have a subconscious narrator who, while telling the story, will kind of stop and say, "Oh, I'm telling you a story," um, which kind of highlights that this is a fiction, that it's not real. We see this in films sometimes too, where a character starts talking, um, you know, to the camera. Um, to, to apply this to life is, is basically, again, to say that, that any understanding of the world is only one narrative among many possible narratives, only one interpretation among many possible interpretations. Now, again, this doesn't lead to relativism. There are some interpretations, some narratives, which are better than others. And what are those that are better than others? Those that are more aesthetically powerful. Some narratives are more aesthetically power, powerful than others. They, they approach the quality of art more so than others. Again, if you think of art as, as a kind of you know, very complicated system that, that can bring together you know, a lot of diverse points of view into some sort of basic harmony um, that, is, that, is, that is pleasing and, and graceful. So that's the basic idea of romantic irony, and it's also how one can think about romantic irony in relation not only to literature, but also in relation to one's own life. I mean, look, the way to think of it is no matter what you do, you're an artist. If you're a gardener, if you're a banker, if you're a professor, uh, no matter what you do, that becomes an art form if you think of life in this way. And if you try to see that as a work of art, then I I think it makes life more interesting and and more exciting and ultimately more beautiful. This uh, We did a series not too long ago about the philosophy of Nietzsche, and this sounds very Nietzschean. Yes. What you're, what you're telling me, in existential. It, it, it is. It's absolutely, it's, I mean, <laughs> what I just said, you could translate into Nietzsche fairly easily. Yeah. I mean, Nietzsche, Nietzsche, Nietzsche never really used the term romantic irony, um, but he did talk about an aesthetic understanding of the world, right? The, the idea being that we are always interpreting, and, and what we formerly thought of as truth is really just an army of metaphors. And for Nietzsche, we should see this as an invitation to create. Um, for him, the philosopher practices the joyous wisdom, right? The gay science, which is just constantly creating sort of new narratives and new interpretations, um, which hopefully open up the eyes of other people and encourage them to create their own sort of interpretations, that we all become artists, that the greatest philosophers are the greatest artists. That all shows up in Nietzsche. So I love this idea that we are actors, also screenwriters in our own movie. I think there's a podcast. I think Joe Rogan says that he's a podcaster. He says that you are the star of your own movie. What would it be? And I thought this was, I like that analogy because I've read several, I've read this biography about John Wayne, never really learned, knew much about him. I mean, I watched his movies, but I, when I read the biography, I was actually, I kind of like got to like the guy a lot more. He was, he, I was endeared to him. And what endeared to me about him was this idea that through the act, through the character of John Wayne, um, he became a better man. Like he, he stri- like he created this character that he himself tried to become, like a fictitious character. Uh, more recently, Tom Hardy, the guy who played Bane in the Batman movie, he always plays these like really tough, manly dudes. He even said that like his characters, in the process of embodying this fictitious character, like he himself feels like he is becoming like that person in a way. Can can actors like movie actors teach us something about being the the the, the writers of our own narrative? 
I mean, were they well, aware, were they aware of that? I mean, were they aware of like what you're talking about in a way? I learned a lot from Cary Grant, and I, and I write about this at, at length in the book. Uh, yeah, Cary, Cary Grant was very much aware of this. Now, of course, he created Cary Grant as a persona in his own life. He was born Archie Leach, um, you know, in a very impoverished youth in, in England, and somehow by hook or by crook, he eventually made his way to the United States, and he created this persona, Cary Grant, and he sort of he lived into it. And he had some really interesting quotes. He says, you know, <laughs> Um, I even I want to, everybody wants to be Cary Grant. Even I want to be Cary Grant. Um, and he also said, "You learning to play yourself is the most difficult thing in life that you'll do." But there's a real sense in in, in Grant in these quotes, but also in his in his acting that you know sort of sort of creating a very a very lively, interesting persona and living into that can, can give your life a kind of value and vitality you wouldn't have if you had not done that. Now, I'm especially enamored of Graham because, to me, his acting is always unexpected and, and unpredictable. He, he never kind of becomes a cliche of himself, I don't think. You, know, you go see a Cary Grant movie, you don't care about the plot. It's a Cary Grant movie. Same with John Wayne, right? It's a John Wayne movie. You go, you go see these, these guys to be those guys, just as you might see, you know, go see Audrey Hepburn or Catherine Hepburn to be those women. This is kind of a classic Hollywood model. You know, whereas now we often think that good acting is the ability to transform into something totally other than yourself. Like I'm going to lose a lot of weight, or I'm going to get an accent. And back with classic Hollywood, it was let's create a persona and make it endlessly interesting. And you know, to me, Grant is endlessly interesting because he's always doing double takes and always you know gazing here or there. And in other words, he he his characters show that he's very much aware of the fact that he is acting. Um, so to me, that's kind of an example for how one might live one's life, just knowing that one is making a script and being aware of that. And I think, I think that Bill Murray does the same thing in a lot of his films, and he, he, I write about him in the, in the, in the book as well, um, that, that kind of knowingness that he brings to a lot of his characters. So I value them more than, say, John Wayne, even though I've kind of grown to like John Wayne, too. I feel like the character he created, to me, isn't as, as, as lively and interesting. It's a little more static and predictable um, than the Grant character or the Murray character. But I do agree with what he says, and I kind of agree with what Tom Hardy says, that, yeah, I mean, you, you, you create something that's totally artificial, but it can generate a kind of reality um, that can yeah, en- enhance your life. Now, I had, a, I had a really big sort of psychotherapeutic breakthrough, and I write about this in the book as well, when a psychotherapist of mine said, hey, man, are there any movie actors you really like? I said, well, yeah. And I listed some. He goes, well, why don't you try to be like that guy, um, you know, in, in, in the next stressful situation and just see what it's like? You know, he, he used the cliche, fake it till you make it. But he tried to give it a, a more kind of profound meaning. Um, and I could talk a little more about the kind of psychotherapeutic um, value of some of these ideas. If, if, yeah, I would if, love to. I mean, I'd love to get now. into that because I think, yeah. uh, I mean, something I've struggled with, uh, depression, that I've written about on the site. And I, what I was, when I was reading, is like, this could be really powerful in helping people deal with uh, things like depression, anxiety, or just hardship in general in life. Well, I, this is one of the main reasons I wrote the book um, is because these ideas have been so important for me in, in dealing with my, my clinical depression. I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, um, and soon after my daughter was born, she's now 13, I guess uh, I fell into a, a really, really, really deep suicidal depression, 
you know, I've been depressed before, but I kind of propped myself up by doing what I was, I was very success oriented. I was kind of a workaholic. I was working all the time. I was also drinking a lot of alcohol and suddenly my child's here. And if I'm going to be a decent father, I can't work as much, you know, nor, nor can I drink as much. And it's like all those props were kind of stripped away. And I was just there. Oh my gosh. You know, my life is, is nothing. It's meaningless. So I started seeking psychotherapy and I saw several psychotherapists, didn't have much success. Saw some psychiatrists, took several antidepressants, didn't have much success. Yeah, but finally, when my daughter was about you know, three, four years old, thereabouts, I did find a good psychiatrist who gave me a good kind of melange of medications. And I also said, you know, go see this psychotherapist. He's really good. So I go see him. Um, and, and really, from the very beginning, he's very much about that if you're depressed, it's because you've trapped yourself in a narrative that doesn't empower you, that takes away your freedom. And he said to me, he said, look, You've made this bipolar disorder um, the kind of controller of your life. You've made yourself a victim of it. So you can say things like, well, I can't be a good father because I'm bipolar, or I can't be a good husband because I'm bipolar. And he said, in doing that, you're making your bipolar disorder a kind of tyrant, controlling your life and taking away your power to change. And you're kind of enjoying that victimhood because it takes away responsibility. You don't have to take responsibility for being, say, a bad father, bad husband. He said, you got to change your narrative. You know, reinterpret this bipolar disorder. Think about it in a fresh way. Put it in a different kind of narrative. Um, and he said, your assignment is to you know, go home and write a new narrative of your life, a, new, a, a novel, as it were, with yourself as a main character, thinking about your bipolar disorder in your life. So, so we, we sort of started working in that way. And Finally, what I decided was, as a father, that I probably wasn't going to be a good traditional father, you know, a, a father with a big F who could be all uh, authoritative and, and wise. Um, I was just kind of good at being silly and stupid and idiotic, and I was really good at making my daughter laugh. So what I did is I self-consciously created a persona. I will be crazy dad. I won't be good parent. I'll be crazy dad. So I just really tried to be as ridiculous as possible. And my main goal in life was to make her laugh. You know, she's four years old. And that created a new way of us relating to each other. We started having fun together and I connected with her in new ways. And again, that led to, you know, sort of deeper, more valuable ways of connecting beyond crazy dad. But the point is, is that, is that, is that this fiction making had really powerful psychotherapeutic value for me. I mean, in some ways, it's very much akin to cognitive behaviors therapy, you know, the idea that you know, psychotherapy should not so much be going deeply within, as Jung and Freud might have you do, um, but rather just create new habits and try to follow through on those new habits. You know, do something five times a week, and eventually it will stick. In other words, you're trying out new stories, and you want to kind of live into those new stories. So for me, these ideas aren't just philosophical. They aren't just, I guess, you know, psychologically interesting, I mean, they're really kind of existentially powerful for me. And and without them, I, I don't know where I would be. Yeah, I love that idea because when you tell it, like, for example, when you tell a depressed person, like, be yourself, like, depressed person, well, myself sucks. Like, I don't want to be myself. Like, exactly. Terrible advice. So, yeah, the idea is like, well, create a new self. That's so much yeah. empowering, so much more empowering. It was so liberating for me because I've been through a lot of more traditional psychotherapy, which is, well, I'm not I'm not discounting that, but, you know, just sort of, you know, recalling the past, thinking about how the past has affected the present, you know, perhaps thinking about past traumas. 
that can be useful, but it wasn't working for me, I guess because I'm kind of overly introspective anyway, and I'm kind of narcissistic. So I kind of got off on this endless navel-gazing, but it never led to any change. Um, but this more kind of outwardly directed psychotherapy did. I mean, I still struggle. I'm not healed by any stretch of the imagination. I still struggle mildly with depression. Um, but I feel like I have a kind of toolkit now, um, which is, is more helpful um, than some of those earlier tools were. I love this. So basically sum up here, because I think uh, we've, we've, hit, we've gone to some big picture things, um, but I, I love how you said like this is really an actual, it's an existential tool that you can use to have a, a more flourishing life, as Aristotle would say. Um, basically, the idea is there is no authentic self to be found. You are the creator of that self, right? Yes, that's 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 what I'm saying in the book. Absolutely, create yourself, and so just go out there and and create the best, like whatever you want to be. Create it within limits. You can't can't do anything too out of uh, the ordinary, but uh, you can create something better for yourself if you want to. Well, I, I, yes, that's that's exactly it. You know, and I I. I, I, I I've had people talk to me who have had, you know, very serious illnesses. And they've said things like, you know, I realized when I had cancer, I could say, I'm the guy who has cancer who might die. Or I can say, oh, I have cancer, but I'm also this and this and this and this and this, right? I mean, it's, it's how you respond to what is given to you. Um, and that's where the fiction making comes in. That's where the interpretation comes in. That's where the creation comes in. So absolutely. Um, and I would say... You know, create a self that you know, opens you to the world, um, that makes the world more heterogeneous to you, that gives you more opportunity to connect with as many other people, which means as many other narratives as possible. You know, if you create a kind of narrow narrative, you're going to be isolated and, and lonely and sad. Great. Well, keep it fake. I love this. Eric Wilson, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Oh, you're welcome. I really enjoyed this conversation, Brett. Our guest today was Eric Wilson. He's the author of the book, Keep It Fake, Inventing an Authentic Life, and you can find that on Amazon.com. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this podcast and you feel like you're getting something out of it, I'd really appreciate it if you'd give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That'd help uh, us get some constructive feedback on how we can improve the show, as well as uh, get the word out about the podcast And the best compliment you could give me is to recommend the podcast to your friends. I'd really appreciate that. Thank you for your continued support of the Art of Manliness podcast as well as the site. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and Sirius XM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and Sirius XM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day, and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So, while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. 
The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.